On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we'll be talking to Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post, who writes about hockey analytics and horse racing and a host of other things. Ruth and I are going to start with a spirited discussion on Kelly Criterion and money management. And then we're going to finish with a little you know, post-mortem on Neil and his appearance, which I think is worth you sticking around for. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, which is the best app to track your sports betting picks, get great content, and get all the lines and the line movements. And it's available for free on the Google Play Store and the iTunes Store. So download it today. And with that, let's start the process. to another episode of the bet the process podcast with jeff ma and rufus peabody um we're going to be talking to neil greenberg from the washington post later about his hockey predictions and some horse racing analytics but first we wanted to answer a question that was brought to us on twitter um and it's about money management and and how you should do money management again like the whole idea of this podcast is to educate bettors into the right process for betting and I think that, you know, one of the things, if you take this back to the blackjack days, people always ask me, why don't more people count cards? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And the first reason is not that it's too hard for people. I can pretty much teach anyone how to count cards in the period of about an hour to two hours. Um, they have to then go practice and practice and practice. But more importantly, they have to have the discipline and the money bankroll and the money management strategy to make money over time because a lot of people when they play blackjack first they're going to overbet right they're not going to have enough units to really withstand any variance and so we typically you know we had back in those days you know about a million dollar bankroll and we were typically betting you know a thousand dollar unit um which works out to what roughly uh 0.1 percent of the bankroll is that right yeah, 10%, yeah, would be 100,000, yeah, about 0.1%. And that was our unit. And we believe, you know, I, I don't remember the exact math, but that could withstand about a three standard deviation event, which means our risk of ruin was pretty low. And, um, you know, that just gives you a sense of sort of what the, you know, our money management strategy was in something like Blackjack, which is, you know, much more certain and much more easy to model and a much more closed system than sports betting, where I think you know quantifying your edge in sports betting is a bit more challenging than quantifying your edge um, in blackjack. How does this differ to sort of how you think about sports management, uh, sorry, money management in sports betting? How, how do you think about it? Well, the big difference uh, between blackjack and sports betting is certainty. Uh, if if you've never heard of the Kelly Criterion, I highly suggest you look it up. Um, it basically says that you want to, uh, for any for a given edge and a given um, odds offered, you want to make a bet size as a fraction of your bankroll that maximizes the expected value of uh, the log of your wealth. So of you're maximizing your long-term growth rate. Now, in blackjack, you actually know what the true odds are. You know that the 
percent, you know, you know that there's a X percent chance an ace is the next card out of the deck, right? Whereas, yeah, I mean, almost definitively, you know, your edge in blackjack. If you're counting cards properly and you're not making mistakes, you know what your edge is. There's still obviously variants of what cards are going to come out in what order, but you know what your edge is at that moment. If I'm, if if we're flipping a coin and I'm offered plus 120 on heads, I know that it has a 50% chance and I know my payoffs plus 120. I can, I'm fine betting Kelly Criterion. You know, because I have I, I know that for certain. It's not certain I'm gonna win, but it's a closed system. The rules of the game are established. Um, in sports betting, it's not that way. And so I think when when uh, someone like, for example, like Seth Byrne, I know tracks people based on um, based on Kelly staking, full Kelly staking, um, that it, he's sort of assuming that this person thinks that their forecast is fact and that it actually is sixty one percent. And I don't think even the market's number. Um, you know, is not precise, you know, it's, it's an estimate. It's, you know, 58% plus or minus whatever percent. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think there's two things here that are important. One, if you want to learn about money management, basically you have to understand a couple things that are important from, from Kelly. Like you want to bet probably based on the size of edge that you think you have, if you are quantifying that edge, but you don't want to bet to full Kelly because you don't know for sure what your edge is because your, your models are going to have more error than um, they might. If you were doing something like card counting and blackjack, I think the other big thing is that the amount that you bet needs to be proportional to the size of your overall bankroll. And, you know, that, that you have to have enough units to overcome, you know, standard deviation or variance and, and, you know, whatever, how many standard deviations you're willing to withstand, whether it's two or three or four, you know, that that's where you're really like trying to determine how aggressive you want to be on growing your wealth and growing your bankroll. But if you do lose a bunch, I think it's important that you do think about, you know, making your unit smaller as you, um, you know, start to lose because that's an important way to risk, I mean, sorry, to avoid, um, you know, blowing out your bankroll or, or ruin. Like for, for a positive EV better, the worst thing to do is, is to ruin and, and to run out of and, and to become bankrupt because you have no way of uh, realizing that, you know, expected value on the upside. So, I mean, it, if I were just advising people, I'd say like, hey, you get, need to read a little bit about Kelly. You need to understand that like, you don't know how to quantify your edge perfectly in blackjack and you need to, I'm sorry, in sports and you need to respect that. And then you need to be mindful of, of how your, um, your bankroll is trending or changing so that you don't get into a situation where you start to overbet your bankroll. But even if you don't know your edge exactly on a specific game, I think you should try to fig- be able to estimate what your edge is. So you should like, ideally look and, and, and see how much predictive power your number has if you can back test compared to the markets and say okay if the best prediction is 80 percent market 20 percent mine then basically i'm regressing my edge 80 percent back to whatever the market standard vig is let's say you know maybe negative 2.4 percent um and so you know if you know if it show you know an edge of 15 that looks like it's 15 percent isn't actually going to be 15 percent but the other question then is so since we don't know with, with certainty, um, and Kelly basically is for if you know what the odds are with certainty, what should you actually be betting as a percentage? Um, and so 
is a percentage of your bankroll. And, and I've always been very conservative on this front. And I've, I think the most I've ever bet on something really is, is quarter Kelly, meaning I do, um, I, I figure out the Kelly amount and then I bet a quarter of that, which mathematically, since Kelly actually does something mathematically, it maximizes, you know, your long-term growth rate. Um, you know, a quarter Kelly doesn't actually do anything. It's not maximizing anything. Um, which creates, which by, by, which by the way, creates problems in a spreadsheet when you're trying to figure out, you know, if, if you have like a certain, you know, if, if I, if I bet $5,000 at plus 158 odds and now the market moved against me and I can get it at plus 170, how much do I bet now? Right. Um, you know, that's, it creates problems, but I think, um, you know, you're not going to be able to be precise on that, but I, you know, honestly, Jeff, I don't think I've ever bet more than 1% of my bankroll on anything. That might come as a surprise to a lot of people, but. Um, yeah, that does seem low. I'm surprised that, that that's the case, but you know, I'm sure there's is... an exception somewhere in there, but maybe, maybe I, I might've had more than 1% of my fortune bet against Bubba and aggregate on the masters, <laughs> but, but those were separate events. They were separate events. They, but they were yes. very correlated. Yeah. Which, it, and if we want to talk about very correlated to him making every, very correlated to him making every putt on Sunday. He did not. On Sunday, yeah, he missed a bunch of putts earlier in the week. No, so on Sunday game. he was making them all, though. Yeah, but the other thing, I mean, you so you also should consider that, Bubba. like whether bets are correlated. You know, if you're if you're betting on a golfer to win and then also to place in the top five, top ten, top twenty. Yeah, I mean that's that's matchups. much more. That's hard, though, right? And that's, that is that. Do you, do you think that becomes more of like an art than a science necessarily, where you're kind of over, looking over your portfolio and trying to understand exactly like how much you should have at risk to a, a few different bets that are certainly correlated. Yeah, in a way. I mean, that's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about betting quarter Kelly because quarter Kelly on its own is meaningless, you know, whereas Kelly is a mathematical formula. And so but yeah, quarter, Kelly, quarter Kelly relative to the rest of your portfolio, if you do that is not meaningless, right? It's just saying that you're taking a less aggressive point of view on using Kelly, on using some tenants of Kelly to understand relative bet size. Right. I'm just saying that Kelly maximizes, actually is a mathematical formula that, that maximizes the log of your bankroll, right? And that, whereas, um, but whereas there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors in anything. There. Right. 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 There's assumptions it makes. And right. sports bettors, we are violating those assumptions. And so we're, if, if we bet full Kelly, we're not actually, we're, we're, we're right. not going to be maximizing our bankroll growth. We're, we're actually, um, probably going to be going bust. You can you can be you can have the world's greatest model, but if you overbet, there's a very good chance you you can go bust. Yeah, and so yeah, I I, I do agree that there is some art to it, especially when you're dealing with um with correlated events. It you could make it a science, I guess, but but the amount of effort that it takes would be, um, you know, I guess time misallocated in my view. You you want to allocate some time to it, but not a ton. Um. So I, I just tend to be a little more conservative on that. And and I think when things are correlated like that, you should be conservative. Well, even if you made it a science, there would be an art to the actual, you know, sort of judgment of how you wanted your risk portfolio or your risk profile to look. That's true. Right. Because like you would you could get to a point where you understood correlations and you understood certain and you could run certain scenarios and understand, you know, what that you know risk uh, profile looks like, but at the end of the day, it would be up to you to decide what you're comfortable with. So, you know, looking at it holistically and understanding like what percentage, you know, you lose if Bubba has like a great day, that's almost going to be as good as doing like, like you said, the heavy lifting to figure it out. Right. 
So, so all right, let's bring in Neil. Um, that's enough for money management for right now. Um, and here we'll bring in Neil Greenberg. We welcome in Neil Greenberg, who is the sports analytics guru at the Washington Post. Um, Neil, welcome to the Bet the Process podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, Jeff, you and I have met at Sloan a couple of times, and, and Rufus has, uh, of course, him and I have met a bunch of times. So I appreciate you having me on. Good to have you on. So we wanted, I think, jump right in to sort of, you know, describe a little bit of what your role is at the Washington Post and, and sort of like what your experience with sports analytics is, kind of what you're doing there and what you're hoping to do. Sure. So I I look to – I'm an actual sports reporter who's – whose job is to, to look at, at sports through an analytical bent. I mean, and that, that means something simplistic like using decimal places in my, in my stories, but also try to answer the, the two main questions, right? So when we see something happen, try to answer, so what? You know, what does that mean? And then put it in context if needed, and also what happens next? So what can you expect? What are the uh, – what, what could happen with a player who maybe is on a hot streak or in a slump or – things of that nature. And um, I've been covering all sports, all the major sports, including uh, also college basketball, March Madness, obviously, college football. And uh, they just added horse racing to my beat with the departure of Andy Byer a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, if it's if it's a sport and it's got some numbers attached to it, chances are I'd be writing about it. It sounds like a lot to, to cover all those sports and, and do it well. I mean, I know betting on three sports as I do, it's a, it's it's difficult to sort of juggle them all. So how do you how do you get your data and how are you able to to sort of um, I mean I mean more how do you do your, do you do you do analysis yourself or are you looking for other people's analysis and sort of using that within your the framework of your story? Um, I think it depends. It, it's it's both. I mean, as you know, there's there's a lot of good. Um, analytics being done in in the blogosphere and and in the public sector. Um, so if I if I come across something, I'll either use that or or use it as a jumping point or reference it. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I'm of course doing my own analysis on on sports. I have my own databases. I build my own databases. Um, I run my own simulations, that sort of thing. Um, as far as data, I mean, I have access to a lot of data thanks to the Washington Post. Um, you know, they they we have a lot of data fees that we purchase. Um, there's also a lot of data that's out there um, in the public domain that I use. And then I have a, uh, a programmer that actually helps me get data if I need it. Um, so if I have to do some special pulls or if I need special some data that's maybe not in all in one place or not easy to get, um, I do get some help to do that as well. So recently you came under scrutiny for a tweet you had, which was, sort of assessing some probabilities in hockey. Um, tell, tell a little bit about, I guess I guess broadly speaking, about what you thought about sort of the Caps night series going in and um, what you think about it going forward and, and, and where that sort of analysis comes from and, and where that analysis would lead you to or lead our listeners to as betters, um, as sports betters. So I... Before, as part of my Stanley Cup preview, um, I assessed the chances of, of both teams actually winning this thing. And, um, you know, Washington is, is an interesting subject because they were maddingly inconsistent during the early part of the regular season back in November. Um, and there were times that they played really great, and there were times where they played really 
crappy. And, um, you know, whenever you have a team like that that has such highs and lows, it's it's oftentimes hard to get a handle on, on what the, the true talent of the team is. So whenever I'm looking at building a, uh, a model or, or trying to assess one team's ability to beat another, I really have to figure out what their true talent is. And what I noticed with Washington was the the way that they played the game changed in the playoffs and it then from the regular season. So I had to incorporate that in my model somehow. Um, and once I did, it ended up that Washington was actually the favorite in terms of, of winning this whole thing. So I actually had Washington, I believe it was a 60% chance to win in a, in a seven-game series, whereas most others, um, including oddsmakers, had them as 60% chance to lose. So I think when I kind of came out, it was viewed largely as me being a homer, having to write for the Washington Post. But, I mean, I covered the NHL at large, so it's not really a – it wasn't backed by any sort of, of, of location. It was just looking at the way this team was playing and looking at the way hockey's constructed in terms of scoring lines and, and line pairs and defensive pairs and goaltending. Um, the way that they matched up against Vegas I thought was very favorable – and um, I think we're seeing that depth, which was a large reason why I had Washington favored, kind of showing through in terms of, of how uh, the Capitals have been able to win these games, uh, these past uh, three out of four games. So I know, so Niels, I know we, we actually talked about this uh, over over Twitter message about how you said you, um, you know, how Washington played during the regular season isn't indicative of how good they are now. And we kind of had a little bit of a back and forth on, on me saying, well, how much shouldn't the regular season still be? weighted more heavily because and and uh but obviously i haven't um i have not um modeled hockey but i think seth uh seth burns comment was largely saying that that that's sort of the vegas number you know there's a lot of money behind that and so and a number that it seems that far off he would he he finds kind of laughable and i think that i mean as he said like the if you were to use the kelly criterion which should, um to you would you would um, be betting twenty seven percent of your bankroll on that, and, and last week on this podcast we kind of talked about why um, using full Kelly doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, because you know there's sometimes things in a, a quantitative model that are not going to um, well things that are not in a quantitative model that are reflected in the market, and just because something isn't spot on doesn't make it like meaningless. But why would you say? Um, how would you sort of? look at your number, I guess, and, and the numbers that are spit out by your analytics systems uh, relative to the betting market? Well, I have to, you know, the first thing I looked at was, like you said, I mean, here I am kind of on an island. And whenever that happens, especially in reference to, to, to Vegas, right, people that put the money behind it, I I always pause and kind of look and see, okay, well, what am I doing that maybe is wrong or maybe I'm doing it the right way? And, you know, there's really no way to know that, right? I, the model says that they had a 60% chance or, or whatever it was. I mean, that could easily be 55. It could be 65. It could be 53. I mean, I, there's really no way to know how much error is, is in this type of model. But what I did know was at the very least that I could be pretty comfortable that this was a, a coin flip, right? And, and, and that, to me, is, is how I look at it from a, a practical standpoint. Now, obviously, in print, it's a, it's a little bit different. But, um, you know, looking at the betting markets, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole point of the Kelly system is if there's an edge, you bet it, and you bet in proportion to the edge. So, like, for me, 
I knew, well, at least I thought that I had some edge. Now, would I be so confident to say that I know more than Vegas um, to, to go full Kelly on it? Probably not. Um, and you and I even had a back and forth in public on Twitter about the, the, um, the Golden State Warriors and their chances of, of not only sweeping but also never trailing in a quarter. And you had asked me what I thought the line would be, and I said something, and then a real odds maker kind of came back and said that's, you know, that's, that's incorrect. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I guess, different ways to look at it. But from strictly, you know, the Washington Capitals, you know, when I have an edge like that, it's, it's really up to, you know, I have to decide, is my method sound? And if the method is sound, then I feel comfortable going with it. And, um, you know, maybe it turns out that I'm wrong. Maybe they would have gotten swept in four and, and everyone would have had a good laugh, I guess, at my expense. But I'm pretty confident in the process not to do a pun on the the podcast title, but uh, you know I've done I've watched hockey I've I've run a lot of analytics on hockey and I've run a lot of analytics on other sports and I felt pretty comfortable with my number. One thing so, that Jeff and I always I'll talk about is sort of having skin in the game and sort of um and and getting feedback from your forecast and I it strikes me I guess um like so for for me I make bets I you know see if they're off market I you know win and lose money but. I, I feel like it's probably tough to get that feedback forecasting in the newspaper world, or if you do, you have to track it yourself. Um, how do you sort of adapt your models and how, how do you sort of grade grade yourself? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, writing for the paper and doing this kind of stuff has its own challenges. And, you know, obviously sports betting being legal in only Vegas, you know, up until this point, it wasn't easy for me to to put skin in the game, um, so to speak. But, um, you know, there are actually other websites that track. I, I make football picks every week, um, and they track those in terms of, of wins and losses. Um, but, again, I think, you know, that's kind of a fool's errand because they have me pick all 16 games. And it's just not going to – there's just no way that I can beat the market every week picking all 16 games. So um, I think – you know, I've been listening to podcasts and, and you guys talking about how's the, the market going to change after sports betting becomes legal. And I think one of the changes for me personally will be not to necessarily pick every game, but to highlight the games where I think there's an edge and to look at it from, from that perspective. So, yeah, I mean, there'll probably still be some picks for the other games, but, you know, if we're looking from a, a standpoint of wagerable opportunities, that'll that'll be narrowed down quite a bit. And um, you know, there's some there's some instances where where I have put put money behind the bets. I mean, I, I ran a uh, major league baseball over unders, and I kind of picked some some parts that I that I thought would be decent wagers, and was able to to commit to that. But the other part of it is, I feel like I have an obligation that if I put something in print, I'm locked into that no matter what happens. So to give an example, I guess for football, if my my article goes up on a Thursday and I pick, you know, team A to beat team B by seven points. And, you know, on Friday there ends up being an injury. I don't think it's fair necessarily for me to go against that only because publicly I've declared a stance. And so what I'd probably end up doing is abstaining, even if I thought there was an edge, even if I thought that there was, was something that was a, a wagerable opportunity, I just couldn't in good conscience um, take advantage of that only because publicly I've taken a stand in another direction, if, if that makes sense. So Neil, I guess like the, at the end of the day, the sort of confidence question is, let's just say that, you know, Rufus or I, or some professional better 
came to you and said, Hey, you know, I read your stuff, um, looking to get an edge in, in hockey, you know, my overall bankroll is say a million dollars and I can get whatever down. Would you advise us to put, you know, whatever that Kelly criterion edge would have been, it would have been pretty big, but let's just say if we said, Hey, would you advise us to bet say 5% of our bankroll on this? On the Washington Capitals winning the series? Yeah. At the beginning. Yeah, probably. Um, I, I felt pretty confident about that. But here's the challenge with hockey. It's so fluky. Like even you can have the best of intentions, but hockey, I would say more so than any sport, is at the mercy of what we call puck luck, right? I mean, you look at, I don't know if you guys follow, I've been following the Stanley Cup, but, uh, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights in game five, I felt were the better team. You know, you have James Neal missing an open net. You had them hitting the crossbar a couple times. You had them getting a ton of scoring chances. You know, typically those fall for goals. So it's it's kind of hard to say, like, with certainty what the edge actually is because, a lot of my models are based on three things. One, what a team's actual win percentage is. Two, what we would expect their win percentage to be based on the goals scored and goals against. And then also what we'd expect their win percentage to be based on their expected goals for and against. So like when a team is missing a lot of their shots maybe early on in the regular season, but they're getting good chances, that too is built in the model that eventually those will fall. And they almost get credit for for being better than they are, only because they should be better than they are. So, you know, based on taking all that into account, I feel relatively confident that if I have an edge, at least the one that we saw with the Washington series, I'd feel comfortable betting that to some degree. But if it if a, if a game is like a coin flip or it's like fifty five forty five, you know, I, I I might look at it a little bit different. So it doesn't. The fact that um, your number is so far off doesn't necessarily make you think there's something off and that you're not accounting for. Um, and for, I would like it makes you feel maybe maybe there's like you're waiting the playoffs a lot. I, you told me this relative to the regular season. So maybe maybe the market is not weighing the playoffs quite as much. But um, but I guess even if there's some truth to your models, what you're saying like what you're saying is um, the edge might not be as big as you think it is, but you think there's some edge. Yeah, like I wouldn't – like if I had a 60% edge in a hockey series series versus a 60% edge in an NBA series, you know, especially with hockey, you really do have to break it down into different components. There's the even strength component, and then there's obviously the, the special teams component, which is the power play and the penalty kill. And those those parts of hockey are almost uncontrollable because they rely on the referee's whistle. So it's – and some teams are really good at adding goals on the power play and some aren't. And I mean, there's just a lot of give and take. So for me, if I'm looking at it from like a, um, like a confidence point of view, I would say I, I'd be most confident in that edge if it was in baseball and basketball and probably less confident if it was in football and then way less confident if it was in hockey, if that makes sense. But shouldn't um, the randomness sort of be incorporated in your model? Like the 60% will incorporate all that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think I try to do as much as possible in terms of look at, look at the team three different ways to, to try to get a sense of its true talent. But um, still, I mean, you know, you look at hockey goals, there's been studies out there that, that have said it could be upwards of 60 to 7% luck, uh, which leaves only 30% skill. 
So in in a situation like that, I mean, it's really hard to to put a whole lot of certainty behind it. Well, I, w- um, I would definitely challenge that notion, right? Because I do think that there is the same sort of scenario in all sports, right? I mean, in in, in baseball, you have a certain amount of luck, and in, in football, you have turnovers, which can be a huge uh, amount of luck, and in basketball, it's three point shooting variance, which is a huge amount of luck, also. So I mean, like I I think that you know. I would caution to sort of backpedal on your model based on the randomness. I mean, if you're confident in your model, you're confident in your model, right? I mean, sure. And I think that's really what, what, where, you know, and, and Rufus and I talk about this all the time. So I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, singling you out in this situation. But the question is can someone like yourself, who isn't necessarily betting on the games himself, and for obvious reasons, I'm not like criticizing you for that. I mean, it wasn't legal, sure. et cetera. But, can we give you the same credibility we could if you were actually a professional better in hockey and we're putting that same amount of money? I mean, like how confident do you feel in your analysis? Like when, when Rufus and I talk and he's that far off the market, he will really go back and try to understand why that is. And he really like, will almost like, you know, go back and, and, and redo every step he can to make sure that there isn't some issue there because he is, you know, putting a lot of uh, at stake. And so I guess sure. the question comes back to, you know, do you believe that that in this new economy or this new media world where there's going to be lots of people looking for gambling advice, do you think it's responsible for you to be giving gambling advice or giving analytics advice um, in, in this way? Like, I, I guess that's the question. Like, do you feel comfortable with people putting lots of money at stake on your capitals? But now, Clearly, now it feels pretty good. So, like, I think, like, you would you would feel like this might be a little bit of a victory tour, hopefully, you know, for all Capitals fans. But I guess, like, at the time when if someone approached you, you said, yes, you feel comfortable with a professional better doing that. But do you feel comfortable, I mean, going forward, sort of giving gambling advice? I mean, let, we can even switch this to, to the horse racing where, you know, sure. you, you had a, a great article about Justify and, and, and really almost like, you know, saying why you thought – he was going to win the triple crown. Like what, where, where would you, as a, if you're advising me on, on who to bet, cause I know nothing about horse racing. Like, would you want me to bet on justify and at what price? So to take it back to horse racing and justify, um, I, I don't think that he's going to be bettable because the odds are going to be terrible. So if I was, I, whenever I look at a horse race, I create my own odds line. I create my own morning line. So looking at the Belmont, I'd have Justify as a 9-to-5 favorite. So for me, that means I probably have to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 2-to-1 odds or better to bet him. I mean, there's no way that he's going off at 2-to-1 odds or better to bet him. So I'd probably look at some of the second choices, which I have, which are um, Hofberg and and Tenfold at 5-to-1, and then Bravazzo at 6-to-1. So if I get anything above those odds for any of those three horses, chances are I'll probably put a, a win wager on them. So that's how I, I, I look at horse racing. So it's one thing to get to kind of narrow down the contenders of the winner. It's another thing to get a, a fair price. And that fair price does a couple of things. One, it, it, it puts the horse's chances in line with the odds that I think is it should be. But then I also bump it up a little bit to take into account any errors that I've made. So typically speaking, if it's like a four to one shot or worse, I'll try to add like a uh, like a half a bean or more to to make up some of the difference 
in terms of if I think that I might have some some error in there. But by and large, you know, creating my own value line, my own my own morning line helps me figure out what horses are bettable opportunities. And then that obviously extends into exactas and trifectas, et cetera, daily doubles and what have you. But um, for me, it all starts with, with the, the what should the horse's value be. And for Justify, I think he's probably closer to a nine-to-five favorite. And he'd probably end up with, you know, going off at like three to four. So there'll be absolutely no bet, no value there whatsoever on him on on Saturday. So, um this both horse racing and generally i'm curious what sort of um how how much weight do you put on the actual market prediction like for example if you're um you, so for example for baseball i weight my number about 50% and the market number about 50% because i've done some empirical research for that but and if you i don't know if you have if if you have back it's obviously harder to back test um like a, a a horse racing model and things like that but i'm curious what how much respect do you give the market especially with horse racing given that it's pair mutual and that the numbers are going to be changing when you say give the market do you mean the morning line or the actual toad odds um both like where it is at the at the current time because if you say uh, well the morning like, line i i don't even care about i i don't even really unless i'm writing for it in in print about one of the triple crown races or the or the breeders cup um, I, I don't. I don't even look at the morning line. I, the morning line is set up for where they think the market's going to go, and even that's kind of hedged because the guy that does it doesn't want to piss off a trainer and give his horse like 50 to one odds, uh, which is probably the re- more realistic point. So they'll bring it down to like 20 to one to make them feel a little bit better. So morning odds, I don't care about. Um, online betting, actually, it used to be back when I in the like when I was actually physically at Belmont to place a to place a wager or at like an OTB or something like that, I'd usually wait till about five minutes left um, in wagering, five minutes to post, because then I didn't really have to worry about any anything weird happening um, to see where the where the odds would be. Now that it's online, what pretty much widespread, I, I probably wait till there's about two minutes to post to see where the odds are, and then I'll make my bet accordingly. If it's peer is mutual, the, is there yeah, is there any incentive to to place a bet earlier i mean what why would i mean why wouldn't you wait till the end when you have certainty and what or closer to certainty in what you're well a lot of people don't make their own lines i mean i'm i'm the one that i, I mean i make i make my own line so that i know what the fair value is um most people that that go to the track have a horse in mind don't really care about the odds they'll see 20 to 1 and think that it's a great deal not really i guess understanding that that could be bet down there's been times where i've liked the horse let's say at 5 to 1 and the odds are six to one with two minutes to go, and I put my bet in, and then I find out once the uh, you know once it closes that the horse has been bet down to two to one because someone put a big chunk of money on it. Um, so even two minutes sometimes I think is probably two minutes too long, but um, you know I mean I I don't really have a choice. So yeah, I mean I agree with you. I think that you got to wait to the last possible minute to make sure that you're getting fair odds. Um, but a, a lot of people obviously don't do that. So as someone that writes about sports betting and, and, you know, analytics and whatnot, um, one of the things I've been doing lately is kind of going around or, and meeting with a lot of people and talking about it. And, and a lot of people are saying like, Hey, why aren't there more and shouldn't there be more sports gambling, hedge funds, et cetera, using analytics. Do you think there's a lot of edge to still be gained in sports betting for analytics people? Like if some, young smart data scientist was thinking about getting into this what would you advise them well 
I think machine learning might be the the best bet to be able to put like a lot of different types of data into kind of a funnel and and figure out how all that how all that stuff um, shakes out. Um, you know, I don't know. It's hard because I don't like I know for instance baseball, right? The the data that's publicly available in baseball and even the NBA. You know, I heard you guys talking about second spectrum and things like that. You know, the public only gets like ten percent of the data that's available. And um, the teams and coaches and everything get a whole bunch of other data that's available. So, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know how. I don't know. I I don't know how the the community is going to going to going to change in terms of betting. But I agree with you. Like in hedge funds, being able to 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 place large amounts of bets on 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 situations where you think that you have an edge might be beneficial. But again, it, it's it's hard to you have to come up with a lot of different models, right? I mean, the model for golf is different than basketball, is different from baseball, is different from football. And um, I don't know exactly how all that would work, but I guess in theory, it, it makes sense. I always thought that, that having kind of a, a, a mutual fund, for lack of a better term, of like futures bets might be somewhat worthwhile. I haven't really looked into that in detail, but, um, you know, you see the, the future odds fluctuate quite a bit. And um, I always thought that perhaps there might be a way to 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 kind of buy in when the when the odds are in your favor, in hopes that you you think that the the short term blip or whatever it is is gonna is gonna correct itself in the longer term. Yeah, I mean, I, one thing just to clarify, like I'm not really in favor of this idea of a gambling hedge fund, mostly because I don't think there's a great opportunity for liquidity um, at the level that a hedge fund would need. Um, and I also, you know, it's just hard to deploy all that capital. Um, I don't know if the legalized market will change that or whatnot. Um, I, I also think the edges are, are challenging at times. I mean, I think the idea of, of a you know, mutual fund of futures would be interesting, except for the fact that futures bets have so much VIG built into them that it's hard to imagine getting that much advantage or really being able to build much of like a, a sort of like good portfolio um, with with those edges. Um, I think final question, because I know you got to run. Uh, tonight's game, uh, hockey game, we're, or sorry, Thursday night's hockey game, you know, do the caps close it out there? Where's the value? What should betters be thinking about there? Yeah, I think Washington does close it out. You know, you look at uh, the way Vegas has been playing. Um, they haven't really been able to to impose their will against Washington the way they have against other teams. Um, the way that Vegas got to the finals was through a, a pretty strong forecheck um, through some weak Western Conference teams as opposed to Washington, which has the the silver bullet to their to their one two two four check, which is defensemen that can that can really be mobile in the defensive zone, make that first pass and get through the neutral zone cleanly. Um, so I don't see why that would change anytime soon. Um, even though Vegas has last change in home ice advantage, they haven't really been able to do much to it with it, I should say. And 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 Washington hasn't really cared at this point. So um, yeah, for me, I think that uh, Washington closes it out in uh, in five games. Rufus, any final questions? No, that's that's all I got. All right, Neil, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, definitely interesting perspective on both hockey and uh, horse racing, which are two things that Rufus and I know very little about. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me on. Hopefully that went okay. Yeah, thanks. Great, thanks a lot. All right, guys, talk to you soon.
So that was Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post. Um, I think Rufus and I have some interesting perspective on that interview. One, obviously, um, Neil's smart, uh, understands analytics, understands understands hockey for sure. Well, when he has a good approach, right? His process, which we grade people on, seems like the right process, both from in horse racing and in hockey that he talked about for the most part. But I think we did see this sort of nuanced lack of understanding of betting that often concerns me when we have non-betters giving gambling advice. Most specifically, I think when he mentioned sort of this, what's that? I don't think it's about whether someone gambles or not, but I do think it's about feedback and being able to have your predictions graded and being able to sort of, I mean, I think, I don't think you get a healthy respect from the market unless you're interacting with the market often. Well, fine. That's the same thing. But I I guess all I'm saying is like, you know, the idea that you could build a mutual fund around futures bets seems like it seems silly. Right. And it's, it's not really understanding what the futures markets are and, and, and and what they really are. Like if you bet, you know, more than a few futures, you're probably losing so much VIG at that point that it, that it's going to be hard to make any money at all. And I'm sure um, Neil doesn't know about the liquidity of those markets either, which is not very, very again. And, and this isn't something that he no, would it's not know a knock on him. Right, right. It's not something that he would know unless he bet into them himself. So that's why I'm saying like, it's hard to take that advice or, or that expert advice from someone, unless they actually are, are betting into these markets, like, you know, going and doing it and thinking through, how to really make money on these. Like, sure, the analysis is good and sound. And someone like, you know, you or I could take that analysis and potentially make money off of it. But for him to sort of give advice in that way and, and to to a novice, and again, this is not his fault. I think he made a good point, which was to say, like, I'm not forcing anyone to bet on my advice. I'm putting it out there, you know, with this disclaimer that it's for entertainment purposes only or whatever. Um, but it does create this sort of very interesting conundrum that I think that I probably care about more than you do. I don't know. No, I, I definitely care about it, but I, I don't, I, as we've talked about before, I don't see as much of a problem with someone giving a, their forecast. Um, and what, you know, because, you know, as, as Neil said, like nobody's being forced to bet his bet it. And, um, and he actually does have confidence in it too. So. So are you gonna are you gonna put any money on um, the Capitals on Thursday? Because I mean, he basically no, said they're gonna I, win. But I'm not. I don't put any money on anybody's because uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know anybody's process. I mean, they can talk about it, but basically, the only person I trust in the sports betting world is myself in terms of my betting. And I'm sure right. it's the same with you. No, I trust you. Uh, <laughs> there, no, there's probably about two or three people I trust. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, and and I think like. What we're talking about trust is like putting any real money down. I think most of us would put yeah. a little bit here and there for you know pizza money or whatever you want to call it. Um, I put pizza money on a on an NBA second half the other day, last week, yeah. or whatever. Because because of you, I was like, I want some action on the second half. Who do you got? And you <laughs> you shockingly won because of J.R. Smith's brain fart. <laughs> I, yeah, I won that one. I didn't win. I didn't win the Celtics one though. You didn't win the in game, which was really, yeah. really. I mean, the Celtics shot seven of thirty nine from three point range. That's that's, not that's next level no. atrocious. Like it's it's hard to believe. But um, um, but back to back to Neil. So one one thing that was interesting to me was was sort of his analysis of the game and talking about you know the Capitals forechecking and and it was I mean I it, it's it's above my level of comprehension of hockey um, and uh, 
because I'm I do not understand hockey very well. I recently figured out what offsides was, so I feel like I wa- I can watch the game now and actually be like, ah, I understand a little why these guys are going backwards now, getting out of the zone. Um, but he, um, I, when we spoke before, he talked about how the Capitals had all these injuries in November, and you can't really. They're not the same team now. They're a different team in the playoffs. They've been playing this way, and for me, that kind of um, it's it's that's a bit of a narrative. And and you know how I feel about narratives. Um, it's it's tough to sort of judge whether that's something that I should believe or not, because you know all these teams. If you look close enough, you know there are differences in teams from from game to game, and and I'm guessing that's something that the the market isn't looking at quite as much. That narrative there that they're obviously considering the Capitals like body of work and the fact that they were Capitals were a team that analytics did not like earlier in the season because they gave up more shots and more quality shots um, than they actually got themselves. Um, So I don't know. What do you think about all that? Well, I guess, so I think the challenge is when a narrative, you know, so the difference between a narrative and a hypothesis are that a narrative often is something that you say after the fact, to sort of like overfit a model or overfit a situation. Whereas a hypothesis is a theory that you have that you then go test via the data. So what I would challenge Neil to say is, hey, if you fundamentally believe that you should only be using, you know, uh, playoff data to model, in order for me to be convinced, you're going to have to show me some data that like, convinces me of that from a, you know, a scientific method standpoint. And it may not be possible because you may not have enough to take in order to gain an advantage over the market. And, you know, sometimes I think like in the case of like someone like Haralabob, who I think does this type of stuff in basketball where he'll notice something and, um, you know, he watches every game and, and he's acutely aware of these different situations. And I think he does use these hypotheses to not necessarily override his model, but to augment his model. If you contrast that to a guy like Dr. Bob, who makes a big point to say he doesn't watch games because he doesn't want to be influenced by what he sees, you know, there's something in the middle, I think that works. But again, like what I come back to is, and, and I think you say the same thing, like if there really is something there, you should be able to find it in the data. The question sometimes becomes, you know, again, like in the, case of the playoffs like is it just too small a sample size for you to find something that is definitive and so therefore do you have to just take a leap of faith and and you're betting on your hypothesis being right Um, if your hypothesis is wrong you're going to lose a lot of money Um, probably if your hypothesis is right you could basically stay ahead of the market i like that you brought up the haralabob thing and that's an interesting point because haralabob i think we all agree knows basketball very well and and that's a big part of his model um and in a lot of and knowing basketball well allows him to know what to look for and what data he wants collected, right? And I'm sure he keeps track of all these things that he notices and is able to sort of empirically test and, and or at least test in some way um, whether they actually are valid and 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 then incorporate them into his betting, right? Yeah, I, I think he does. I mean, and he has a pretty big operation, I know, where people are doing and running analytics for him. So I'm sure... He's constantly feeding them theories based on, you know, him watching every game and noticing things. And like, if you ever hear him on any basketball podcast, the guy knows basketball better than any analyst you're going to see out there. He notices things that no one else notices. So, you know, I do think there's a ton of value there. Um, And so I guess what I'm saying is if you go 
pull this full circle to sort of your criticism of what Neil's doing, like he has noticed something. What I would just challenge again is like, well, let's try to figure out if we can see this empirically somehow in the data or, or prove this out somehow um, so that there's not just, you know, my opinion or my gut that's driving me to the, you know, to this pretty big decision of only using playoff data to model out the cap's performance. Yeah. And I, and I wasn't criticizing Neil. What I was saying is I don't necessarily know to me, like, I don't, my, my initial reaction to, is to say, no, we should weight everything the same or, or not the same, but like, you know, weight more recent stuff more heavily, but not throw out all this stuff. And, and when, but as I said, I don't know. And, 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 you know, he has this, you know, he talked about the capitals being strong in this, in, in, I think cross-checking or something and, and the way the way, the way they, the hockey style they were playing is can do like, you know, the Vegas can't match or something like that. And I don't, the thing is what I'm saying is I, I can't evaluate whether that's true or not. That's, that's what makes it interesting to me. Right. I mean, he, he could be onto something that, that the market is not factoring in due to his extensive knowledge of hockey. Um, I don't know. Right. But yeah, I mean, not, like, let's let's just yes pull this. No just like if Haralabob gave me some theory about basketball and and a reason that like you know some team was winning, I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to really comment on that. So 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 let's let's question, pull this. Wait, let's, go ahead. The question is: Is that is Neil's observation? Is that something? Um, but the question is: Is that something that's predictive or explanatory? Also, right? I mean, this is how the series has been going should we still, is, is this how it will continue to go? Will, will, or will the other team adjust? Well, what he was saying also, you know, when he was, so one of the things I, I think we both kind of like wanted to challenge was this notion that like hockey has like a greater variance of outcomes because of puck luck or goal luck or whatever he was talking about. Like, I think we see that in all sports and, and that's why outcomes aren't always um, indicative of the way the game was played. But he talked about the most recent game where a lot of people talked about how the Knights missed an empty net pretty early on and, and missed some shots early on, you know, hit a post and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the game actually wasn't quite as, as, you know, as dominant, especially early um, as it looked. So when you, you know, he used that kind of as a narrative and, and, and like that, that becomes interesting because does that set, sort of like make it such that maybe these results aren't as, you know, skewed as people would think where maybe Washington shouldn't be up three, one, Maybe Washington should only be 2-2. And then you're looking at a much different sort of like thought process around this. But again, this is why we need analytics because as human beings, we're terrible at making decisions. We make emotional decisions. We're, we're subject to cognitive biases that, that are there all the time for us. So I want to go back to the NBA um, game seven. And I know you watch both games because we were texting back and forth between them. One of the things I was talking to a friend today about, you know, the, the, the Rockets and the Celtics both lost those game sevens because they shot well, well, well below what their normal three-point percentage are is. Like the Rockets missed like 25 in a row. The Celtics were seven for 39. Um, someone said to me today, oh, it seems like, you know, third three-point three shooting pressure in game sevens is real, right? And that's why it becomes interesting in, in the case of LeBron James, you know, like, I tweeted out that LeBron James was not the reason that the Celtics missed a lot of those wide open looks, but maybe LeBron James game, which is much more dependable and, and much less maybe prone to um, the game seven sort of like nerves 
in that lower scoring environment, maybe that that's where LeBron James really shines. And maybe that's the true value of LeBron James. But like the, the point of me saying this is like, you know, it is when, when you think through like that narrative, right. That we've created around game seven pressure. Like, is that something that, you know, like that you believe is true or is that something that you would even want to test? Or do you think like, it's just such a small sample size, one game that it's sort of just a noise to you. Well, do teams shoot worse overall in game sevens on three pointers? Is that, I mean, I'm sure there's data to show what, you know, NBA reference or whatever, basketballreference.com probably has that. Do you know, do you know that? I don't know for sure. I mean, I I know that in the last two game sevens we've had, (laughs) they've shot really poorly. True. So, so I mean, and I mean, the Cavs did not shoot very well in that game seven also. So no, I I don't know. Um, It's probably worth looking into, but it's, it's, it's very interesting to think about. I mean, yes, I, I agree that what you're saying, it, it does seem like LeBron's game is probably lower variance, but that's because, you know, shooting two pointers and shooting in the paint is much lower variance. It's why it, a team that's trailing should be shooting more three pointers. And if, if you're up by a lot, you probably want to go low variance and shoot fewer three pointers. Right. Right. No, this but is like I, the I whole reason. The, this is the whole reason that the Rockets, I've, I've talked about this. The reason Maury wanted to set up his team like this is because he wanted more variance um, when they were when they were worse than everyone. But now that they're better than everyone, maybe he should want less variance. Right. I think the big problem, I mean, just for me watching was James Harden kept shooting and like it, it seemed like his shots weren't even close, like his three pointers. And then he would like draw. Honestly, like when he's not playing well, it kind of looks he he, he just looks like an awful player when he's playing poorly. <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It looks like he shouldn't even be on the court. You know, no, I, I, t- I mean, he'll like drive he... and then he'll pass. He'll throw a pass like no look pass to the other team. And I, I you know, it was, yeah. <laughs> I love it's hearing your watch. expert basketball analysis. Yeah, this is my, <laughs> no, but it's it, the Celtics definitely had a bunch of. It seemed like they created open threes for themselves. They just didn't hit them. Yeah, it's it's pretty much what happened. Uh, you want it, anything else on this? I think this was a good follow-up on our interview with Neil. I mean, we we don't want to, like, obviously, we appreciate Neil spending time with us, and I think we both have a, a tremendous amount of respect for him. Oh, for sure. Um, I think what we're, what we're trying to do is highlight uh, the challenges in, in media um, presentation of sports gambling information. Um, and, and these are challenges that we suffer with also, which is trying to create narratives to make the stuff that we do seem even more interesting than it really is, like, building a model probably isn't that interesting for, for, you know, entertainment value on television. Um, so you have to deconstruct it and create narratives that make the, you know, the, the analysis sound more interesting than it really is. You want to create a, you, you need to create a narrative of good analysis because, you know, people think in stories and what is it like you, you remember, I forget what that statistic is because it's a statistic and not a story. Um, yeah, we remember stories. We don't remember statistics. I thought you were going to say you miss every shot you don't take. That was, that's, that's also true. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, this has been Bet the Process. Um, thanks for joining us. I think we'll try to be back next week with some World Cup stuff. So you're, you're getting a lot of Bet the Process lately. So hopefully you enjoy that. So with that, um, that's, 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 that's it for us today.